0: Hello and welcome to In the Cactus. I'm Siobhan Jones and I'll be your host as we power through difficulties together with hope. If you're in the cactus, a troubling situation like bullying, or want to help someone who is, this is the show for you. Before we get started, an important message. If life is in danger, call triple zero. If you're in crisis, call Lifeline anytime on 13 11 14. In this episode of In the Cactus, we'll hear from Dr. Erin Burke Quinlan, lecturer at the Social Genetic and Developmental Psychiatry Centre and Imogen Project Coordinator at King's College London. The name of the study we're talking about today is Peer Victimisation and its Impact on Adolescent Brain Development and Psychopathology. Let's find out what that all means together. Erin, welcome to the show. Thank you,
1: Siobhan. First, can you tell us a bit about Imogen? Yes, Imogen. It was one of the first longitudinal studies of adolescence. So, at age fourteen, to incorporate measures of not just behavior but also biology, so MRI scans and taking a blood sample to look at genetics and some other potentially biological markers to understand how healthy development in in adolescence is related to the subsequent onset of common mental disorders. Uh, So they first came in at age 14. They were seen again at ages 16 and 19. And then in 2018, we finished the third follow-up at age 22. And fingers crossed, we we aim to follow them as long as they'll let us and as long as uh, we can procure funding. When did you do this peer victimization study? Um, so I started about 2017 and the paper was published at the end of 2019. and the peer victimization related questions were asked at ages 14, 16, and age 19 in, in the adolescents now young adults. And can you tell us what the term peer victimization means? So bullying is kind of falls under that larger peer victimization umbrella kind of what what we classically define bullying and one of the basically the pioneers of of trying to understand bullying uh, in the early 90s said, kind of quote, when we talk about bullying, these things happen repeatedly and it's often difficult for the young person being bullied to defend himself or herself in, in a very rigid sort of academic context. For it to be called bullying, there needs to be a power imbalance. So where they were repeated aggression, the person might be bigger, you know, again, in the classical sense, they don't often consider it bullying when the teasing or, you know, ostracizing, leaving someone out or the physical aggression is done by someone of the same strength um, or power. My background and expertise is not in peer victimization and bullying but, you know, the little bit that I, of course, had to kind of familiarize myself to sort of understand the question and what I could call it for the purposes of my research, I think there's a push to loosen that definition of bullying because, you know, does it have to be repeated? Um, you know, one really traumatic assault, you know, by someone, that, that is peer victimization. So maybe trying to get rid of this idea that there has to be a power imbalance and let's start really looking at peer victimization, which might also include cyberbullying. You know, where you don't even necessarily know if the person on the other end is bigger or, you know, has some sort of um, power advantage, if you will. I called it peer victimization in my paper and not the colloquial, you know, bullying, because an expert told me that the questionnaire we used in the Imogen study to look at peer victimization and ask the young people if they experienced such victimization. She said, you know, your questionnaire does not capture a power imbalance. And so um, that might have been critiqued if I called it bullying when actually we weren't looking at power. Can you tell us
0: about the aims of the study as well as why you were studying adolescents in particular?
1: So about 75% of common mental disorders emerge by the age of 24. So that might be things like aggression, mood disorders such as depression, eating disorders, Uh, even um, psychosis, so schizophrenia, tend to emerge. 75% of cases emerge by age 24, uh, and in late adolescence as well. I think in the 90s, using brain imaging, it was shown that the brain is changing and developing quite extensively during adolescence. So the creators of the study thought, well, if common mental disorders are emerging at you know in late adolescence young adulthood and we know that during adolescence the brain is undergoing lots of change and maturing let's study the brain and behavior before the onset of those disorders because the idea was that perhaps we can ideally if we're lucky capture what changes might be related to the onset of mental disorders and you know even loftier goals is that could we eventually with this study and others, predict the possibility that someone might go on to develop a a common mental disorder? Can we understand if there are unique factors that contribute to the onset of of common mental disorders, be it environmental, again, biological, which was unique about Imogen. And now there are a number of, of studies looking at adolescence across the world. So adolescence is really unique to try and understand what's going on In the brain and environmentally, you know, they're changing schools, maybe entering into romantic relationships, things like peer victimization, environmental stressors might impact the already ongoing processes of brain development and maturing. And so that might be a way in which, you know, the external environment is impacting the brain, which might then possibly lead to the development of mental disorders. What were the key findings of the study? So peer victimization, you know, as you get older, in general tends to decrease. As we get, we get older, we get out of school. That's not to say it doesn't continue for some people. So what I was interested in is what I called chronic peer victimization. So because we had information from the young people at ages 14, 16, 19, I wanted to identify, because I know it decreases, if there was perhaps a group of people for which this victimization didn't didn't abate didn't didn't decrease you know have they been chronically victimized across their adolescence because my thought was that might really impact you know the brain my phd was looking at how the brain changes with rehabilitation after an individual has a stroke and so how the brain changes, what we call plasticity. And that's just how the brain is adaptable, how it's able to change. And we no longer think of the brain as being static and you know immutable over time, even in adulthood. We know that it, it can change. And so a lot of studies had shown that peer victimization is related to mental health or mental disorders. There have been some really nice studies done by some people that I've worked with in my department and, and former members of my department at King's College that have shown actually that there might be a, a causal link between peer victimization and things like hyperactivity and depression. But in at least in humans, from what I could see, I couldn't find a possible biological mechanism by how this happens. And so by the time that I was interested in asking this question, we had received the age 19 MRI data, so the brain the brain pictures and, and information that tells us how the brain looks and how it's functioning. And so I thought it might be interesting to see if we have the, this potentially subset of people who've experienced chronic peer victimization, and I have their brain scanned at age 14 and age 19, how is the brain changing? And is that related to how their mental health is at age 19? And what I found was there was a very small subset of people who had been chronically peer victimized across ages 14, 16, and 19. What does chronic mean? Is that about length of time, level of impact? What's what measure did you use there? So it was the same, um, same self-report questionnaire that was um, that is asked at ages 14, 16, 19. And so for me, chronicity was just about I guess, the duration, if you will, with which they experienced peer victimization. So it was people who reported high amounts of victimization consistently across ages 14, 16, and 19. And when I looked at sort of the graphs, you could, you could see that there was this small group where their self-reported instance of victimization was high, and then everyone else sort of decreased from ages 14 to 19 because that's the well-established sort of pattern that it it does in general across a population decrease. But yet there seemed to be some people that were just reporting that it happened to them all throughout adolescence. And I thought maybe that this would be even more impactful to look at, especially the brain when we don't know how quickly and and, and how how little or how much sort of stress is required to change the brain. So I thought, well, let me start with kind of the most severe, if you will, cases of peer victimization in the sample that we had. Mm. What were the findings of that? So we wanted to see if there, were, again, were differences in mental health to kind of confirm what other studies have shown, that peer victimization or bullying is related to higher rates of common mental disorders. And indeed, what was nice is that first and foremost, this was replicated in this data set, this imaging data set. So individuals in this chronically peer victimized group reported higher, greater rates of depression, anxiety, and hyperactivity, which is linked to ADHD. But then what was unique about this study, again, was bringing in the brain. And what I found was that there were differences in the volumes. So you think of, um, you know, like a, in, mil, in milliliters, so the volume of these brain structures were different as well in this chronically victimized group. How were they different? What I was looking at was um, the change, because I had MRI brain scans at age 14 and age 19, and you can take the volume at age 14, the volume at age 19, and look at the difference. And we know from other studies that a lot of brain areas actually get smaller across adolescents, and that's not a bad thing. That's just how we've come to understand how the brain matures. It sort of prunes away and maybe gets rid of connections and things that it doesn't need. People often think of it as maybe the brain becoming more efficient in how it, how it works, how it functions, how these brain regions talk to each other. So I found that across both groups, volumes in, in two particular brain regions, the caudate and the putamen, were decreasing over time, which is, again nice because it's confirming what other studies have shown. But what was interesting was that this chronically peer victimized subgroup, their rate of change seemed to be steeper or accelerated, where the difference in change uh, from age 14 to 19 was greater in the people who'd been chronically peer victimized. And so that was really interesting to find indeed that individuals with higher reports of peer victimization had greater decreases in two brain structures called the caudate and the putamen in the volume, and that this was linked to greater anxiety in these young people. How long
0: can that legacy of peer victimization last?
1: Uh, If only I knew. Um, So that is something we don't know. So ideally, if these people, um, if this brain observation holds at age 22, you know, a few years later, ideally we would scan them, you know, in their late 20s, early 30s, to see if this is a pattern that indeed stays. Does it keep going? Does this this brain area get even smaller compared to the other sort of uh, non-chronically victimized group? Does it stabilize? So at this point in time, that's not something with my data, with my study, I'm able to answer, but it certainly is something that in the future, you know, we could look at. What we can say from, you know, a lot of work that's done on how the stress affects the brain at a really cellular molecular level, which of course brain scans can't, can't begin to get at, that, you know, a lot of animal preclinical work shows that the brain again is very plastic. So we don't know how long these changes might last, but we know that with um, you know, in the case of you know what I did, looking at rehabilitation with stroke, that even in adulthood, with a re, with you know that cases, it's a motor, a movement rehabilitation to help improve hand function. We know that the brain can change, and when we see pr- improvements in a particular behavior, we can infer that there's something going on in the brain that's underlying that change in behavior. So, um, you know, if these changes in the brain with peer victimization lasted, it's hard to know if that lasting change is is going to still be related to you know anxiety, or if you know an individual as an adult sought some sort of therapy for the experiences that they had growing up um, to you know improve and manage their anxiety symptoms you know, there, there may be brain changes that are supporting the improvements in the anxiety symptoms, but that's really difficult to look at with MRI in people. Mm-hmm.
0: And I know you've said that, you know, the volume changes aren't always a bad thing, but if it is associated with, you know, developing mental illness later in life, in your adult life, I'm sure we're thinking the same question here. And that is, is it possible for the brain to recover?
1: Um, the most thing akin to a peer victimization that they can look at in, in animal models is looking at early life stress or maternal stress. So, when a, a pup, like a, a mouse or a rat, is removed from the care of its mother, or if the mother doesn't have particularly supportive behaviors, you know, um, taking care of, of her, her babies. You're like, that's very stressful for, for the young pup. And so they show that the brain is indeed, can change with, with therapy, with treatment, um, where it's pharmacological, it can show changes in you know, how the brain functions, how the brain areas talk to one another. Um, again, my background isn't necessarily in, in psychiatry in a classical sense. So I'm not sure you know, um, you know, if there've been brain imaging studies of say a behavioral therapy You know, so if you um, go into a classical therapy setting or undergo cognitive behavioral therapy, if there have been studies showing, you know, using MRI, if, if if there are positive changes, you know, in the brain, I think what, because we don't know if these changes are permanent and if those possibly permanent changes are still related to ongoing, you know, mental disorders, I think my personal thought is that it might be better to think about preventing these changes than relying on being able to sort of retroactively change them. Because we also don't know necessarily what is normal or a healthy brain at age, say, 30, 35, um, because everyone is so different and their experiences are so different. And this study also didn't take into account genetics, which, of course, um, how our brains look is largely at first initially, you know, driven by the genes we inherited from our parents. But of course, the environment can change that, can impact that. So that's something that wasn't looked at in this study. So there's so many factors that could influence how our brain looks and functions once we're, you know, adults. So it's hard to know, again, what would be normal at a later point in life. But I think therefore, it's really important that we think about If indeed peer victimization, bullying, cyberbullying, you know, all these kinds of external stressors might be putting people on a different path for how their brain develops. Again, not necessarily damage, but a different growth, different path. Mm. I think if we could intervene, you know, in instances where there is peer victimization, bullying, educate people to try and halt any sort of different developmental path for the brain.
0: Mm. I mean, you know, the implications for peer victimization or bullying prevention strategies are, I find really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you, what is a common myth about peer victimization and the brain that you would love to quash?
1: So I think together, there really aren't any myths about peer victimization in the brain because it just hasn't been studied, really. But I think with peer victimization you know, how, how, victimization is defined can also vary by country, by, by social and cultural contexts. But peer victimization, I think maybe in a more Western classical sense is that, you know, it might build character or, you know, we all go through it. It toughens you up, you know, sort of buck up, deal with it. Um, that might be my, my dad's generation speaking, but we know that it has impacts out into the fifth decade of life. So, um, Professor Louise Arsenault, one of her uh, colleagues, they showed here in the UK that mental health service use was higher even out into the fifth decade of life in individuals who had been uh, victimized and bullied, um, you know, in in their youth. So once it's done, it's done. There's no there's no lasting impact, and if anything, perhaps you know we're a bit more hardy for it. But I think that is a, a big myth, and that it's it's can be a form of trauma that that people take with them for for a very long time mm. and what should researchers
0: be looking at next and why
1: I think would be interesting kind of the kind of keeping it close to home at first would be to you know look at age 22 um, in the, at least in the imaging sample to see if these again changes are are still there if, if they continue if if they've sort of normalized um, again and when I say normal I just mean do they look more like the other group that hasn't been victimized? Because again, it's not to say that they're normal. It's just that that's, maybe that's a, a more typical pattern of development. And are these victimized young people, are their brains still on a different, a different path? I think there's a lot of work that's looked at childhood maltreatment, so abuse and neglect. Um, when I was you know doing a lot of research for this particular analysis, this question... There's been a lot of stuff on abuse and neglect that happens, unfortunately, in in children. And that's been shown to have lasting impacts on the structure of the brain out into adulthood. So I think particularly with increases in cyberbullying, which again, we didn't have, this study was started before cyberbullying was a thing. Um, So that's uh, something that we, we, you know, information we don't have on these young people is if they were cyberbullied, you know, at least later in their adolescence, it would be interesting to look More about bullying and the brain, because there's just so much we don't know. And even if we don't have the most ideal study that follows young people for 20, 30 years, that's very costly and 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 practically very difficult. But even if we have different studies that ask you know similar questions, maybe in different kinds of groups, again, thinking about sociocultural Mm. uh, influences, you know, start incorporating measures of victimization and bullying in their big studies that have imaging, you know, and, and other biological measures to try and get a really, as much as we can, um, holistic, well-rounded picture of how bullying is, is impacting young people for how long and what other factors, you know, might also be related to bullying because other stressors might not be happening in isolation. So I was curious if the findings from my that I found to answer my question were unique to peer victimization or maybe just a lot of stress that the young people were experiencing. So we have a questionnaire about childhood maltreatment, so abuse and neglect. And we also had um, a questionnaire about more general life events and that some might be stressful, some might not be. So things like getting acne breaking up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, changing schools, parents divorcing, things that are pro- perhaps more common than peer victimization and childhood maltreatment. Um, but cumulatively, again, can be very stressful for a young person. So I was curious if maybe what I'm finding is just general to stress that these young people are experiencing. Mm-hmm. And I found that the relationship between peer victimization and anxiety via changes in, in um, brain structure were unique to peer victimization. So including stressful life events and childhood maltreatment in my model didn't change things. So that's to say that at least it seems like what I what I found is over and above any other types of stress that the young people were experiencing.
0: So what I'm hearing is that it's this specific experience of peer victimization that changes the brain in this way that can then lead to those anxiety and depression experiences um, at the time or later in life?
1: Yeah. so, So, yeah, this preliminary data in this one, you know, study suggests that there are changes in the brain that are linked, potentially, you know, I can't say causal, but seem to be associated with peer victimization and anxiety. And, uh, and there might be common brain areas. We know that there are brain areas that are linked to emotion and to stress. And so a lot of these brain areas kind of come up in, in different context, if that makes sense. So the brain areas I found have also been found to be different you know, in, in individuals who've been maltreated. So there might be some common biological mechanisms by which you know, stress is impacting one's mental health. Um, but they may not always be the same. So, you know, luckily the brain areas that I found weren't completely surprising, but clearly, at least in this study, these brain areas that were changing were unique to peer victimization and not common with other types of stress in these young people.
0: Was there anything while doing the study that surprised you?
1: Um, so... I looked at nine different brain regions based on literature looking at early life stress as well as maltreatment. And I think I was expecting some more um, traditionally emotion-related parts of the brain to be diff- you know, diff- changing in a different way in the individuals reporting chronic peer victimization. So not to get too neurobiological, but there are maybe areas of the brain called the amygdala that maybe people have heard of that are really inextricably linked to how we process how we perceive and how we process um emotional things which of course is very tightly linked to memory so i think i was maybe expecting to see an area like that be different or change differently um i didn't in this particular sample so that was a bit surprising from my sort of neuroscience neurobiological perspective i guess surprised in a in a more positive way um you know, chronic peer victimization did occur in a very small subset of, of young people. So I think I was, in a way, pleased to see that it wasn't, you know, 40% or 50 or more percent of young people experiencing um, peer victimization chronically over a number of years, which was good for, you know, the young people in the study, but also when you're running Analyses, sometimes you need a large number of people to be confident in your findings or to sometimes even be able to find uh, relationships. Um, mm-hmm. And so when I had this somewhat small group of people, I thought, ooh, I might not have enough what we call power or resource to, to see if there is anything going on. You know, I, having a small subset of people chronically peer victimized, I was still able to find these, these important relationships. And Erin,
0: can I ask you, why do you do the work that you do?
1: It's, it's curiosity and a mixture of curiosity. And, and I think, you know, going back to when I was younger, a sense of altruism. Um, I was curious how, you know, how the brain works. I took a study on neurobiology and I was instantly fascinated. And I think always interested in why people behave differently. I wasn't surprised that I found myself after my PhD, and moving into a more mental health realm um, and wanting to understand, yeah, how, how these really common mental disorders, which, you know, are very stressful for people, they lead to, they're one of the most common causes of, of years living with disability. There's obviously financial ramifications. So of course, in the longer term, hoping that what I do, what we do collectively, because it's never just, you know, usually one person, can try to understand what's leading to to mental disorders. Again, kind of the really lofty goal for a lot of researchers is can we predict who might develop uh, a particular disorder or disorders? Um, But in order to do that, we have to have these really large studies that have lots of different kinds of information about the people. So brain, genetics, behavior, environment, Um, you know, we hope that we can identify potential therapeutic targets if we know certain areas of the brain are important for a particular disorder. Will that inform people who do more pharmacological work? You know, to to develop new new treatments, even if or a behavioral treatment. So, it's it's a mixture of wanting to understand how things work um, by looking at the brain and, and taking advantage of looking at the brain in humans, which you know MRI allows us to do. Um, you know, this one study. You know, if I'm honest, probably you know isn't going to lead to a treatment. You know, it's just the t- it's just the tip of the ice research iceberg, to hopefully have some sort of impact in improving the lives of people with mental disorders.
0: You touched on hope there a little bit. What is your message of hope?
1: My message of hope is that there are dozens, hundreds of researchers out there who like me, want to understand things, there's always that level of curiosity, but also to help people. And so there are researchers and, and you know funding agencies, and there's a lot of people out there trying to understand uh, what's going on to try and improve those situations. And so I think people should hopefully still realize that science is very much in their corner. And we're, we're really trying to, to be cutting edge and exciting, but ultimately to to help. And so, you know, I'm not sure how quickly a lot of our efforts will manifest in new treatments, but, you know, there we we're, we're trying and we we care and also to a lot of research bodies or finance bodies, governments and and trusts and things really want researchers to incorporate people into their research from a really early stage. So kind of what we call patient and public involvement. There's a big push now for science to involve the public more, um, because it's the public that is experiencing these things, having difficulties, having you know a whole host of experiences that would be informative and helpful. Um, any chance the public can get to be involved in science and to to share their story would also be immensely beneficial. So there's there's hope in in how research is is interacting with the public to help the public.
0: If we want to find out more about Imogen. Or this peer victimization study how
1: can we do that well there's the Imogen website so it's wwwimogen europecom and there's you know um, a bit about the other groups the teams the people involved if you want to you know kind of just see some faces you know people that are involved in this kind of research the different sites in four different countries by all means go to the website to get copies can be difficult if there's um, you know, the if it's owned by the journal or something like that. But if someone, you know, wants um, a, a copy of the paper, happy to, to provide that. Erin, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Siobhan.
0: And that was Dr. Erin Burke-Quinlan, lecturer and Imogen Project Coordinator at King's College London. The key resources mentioned are in the show notes. If you like the show, please tell a friend and rate and review In the Cactus on Apple Podcasts. If you have a question you'd like answered, search for In the Cactus on Facebook and you can send me a direct message or you can tweet at In the Cactus. Thanks for listening. That's it for now. Go with hope.